You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Good morning. Turn to James chapter 4, if you don't mind. James chapter 4. While you're finding your place, we want to say thank you to all the dads that are here this morning and all that are watching online. And uh, we appreciate uh, your faithfulness to the gospel. We appreciate the example that you set for your family. We appreciate the fact that uh, even when gas is $5 a gallon, you're figuring it out. Because men are fixers. Not to say that women aren't, but men are fixers. We figure it out and we plot a course and we set our eyes to the rise and we move forward. And I uh, just appreciate all the men in the room. I appreciate my dad. I'm going to ask all the dads, if they will, to stand. I know you don't want to, but it doesn't matter. You're going to stand anyway. If you're online, stand up at your house. Stand up, guys. Let's give you a round of applause. So all over Robinson County and beyond today, there will be smoke rising of meat being overcooked or undercooked. <laughs> That's right. And they'll be having it in my house as well. So... Uh, Looking forward to uh, cooking some meat today in honor of dads everywhere. James chapter 4, verse 1. Now, I'm, I'm going to just tell you from the very beginning, guys, hear me out here. Dads, hear me. I planned this sermon series months ago. And it's by sheer leadership of the Holy Spirit that this text fell on today. Now, some of you, after I read this text, are going to think, you should have preached that on Mother's Day. So let's read. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not suppose it is of no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he, it, therefore it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy turned to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of it. But also, Father, that what we read this morning is not easy to read. Father, we're thankful for your grace that you give, and it's grace on top of grace. But Father, when we find ourselves in one of our worst moments, in our worst decisions, when we have completely fallen flat on our face, it's not then that you love us less, it's then that you love us more, even more, even more grace. Father, we know that your love for us never goes away, it never ends, it never lessens. And if it were not for your grace, we would be a people 
in miserable shape. So Father, we praise you for that grace and we praise you for the love that in spite of our failures, it is never ceasing. So Father, we seek your face this morning. We want to worship you and honor you first and most. And Father, may you be exalted through the reading and the proclamation of your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to ask you a question. What is the difference between an acquaintance and a best friend? And I know that many of you are active on Facebook, and when you look down at that column, it says that you have 1,000 friends, 500 friends. Now, obviously, not all of those people are your best friends. As a matter of fact, if you scroll through that list, you're probably going to find people you don't even really know who they are. You just accepted a friend request from them. So we can all agree that probably the majority of those people are maybe at best acquaintances. But there may be one or two or three or four people in that list that you would consider your best friends. Maybe your best friend's sitting next to you today. Maybe your best friend lives in another state. But what does it look like to have a best friend? And when we compare that to an acquaintance, what's the difference? Well, the acquaintance is the person that, you know, you may see every now and then and you're okay with that. You know, it may have been years since you've seen them, and it's not really a big deal. But the best friend is the one that if you haven't seen in a while, you got to make an appointment. You got to get a cup of coffee. You got to meet for breakfast. You got to go to the park. The best friend is someone that you want to see on a regular basis. The acquaintances, maybe, maybe not. It's not a big deal if you just check in every now and then. A best friend is someone who knows you well and you know well. A best friend is someone that you do life together with. A best friend is someone who knows your failures and your victories. They know what your life's been like. They know your story. They know your history. They know the brokenness. They know everything about your life because you've shared it with them openly. This person is someone that you can share with safely. It's someone that you don't have to worry about gossiping or throwing you under the bus. It's someone that, that you can go to when things aren't going well and you can just bawl your eyes out and you know that that person is going to tell you what you need to hear. That's what separates us from acquaintances. Acquaintances are not necessarily people that you spend a lot of time with. A best friend has some influence in your life. As a matter of fact, if, you, if, you have, if you've had a best friend for a long time, you may be surprised at how much influence they've had in your life. Matter of fact, maybe some of the ways you see the world is because of this person in your life and maybe the wisdom that they've shared with you. So a best friend influences your life. Acquaintances, not so much. Their opinion about you matters. Their opinion about life matters. They're the ones you run to when things go wrong. They're the ones you confide in. So obviously there's a, there's a big difference between acquaintances and best friends. But let me ask you another question. What happens when the world becomes your best friend? Now when I say the world, I'm not talking about the blue ball circling around the sun. I'm talking about the culture. I'm talking about the worldview. I'm talking about what the world believes, the, the people who live down the street from you, the, the world as it sees truth. What happens when you become best friends with the culture? Well, that's exactly what James is going to point us to today. We've already talked about how much influence the tongue can have and how that the tongue is a small thing, but it can it can have great influence. It boasts great things. We, we said that the tongue reflects what is actually in the heart. 
And we talked last week about how do things get in our heart? How do we, how do we form these opinions about life and our, and our worldview? How is it shaped and how we see the world? Well, we said that last week James was saying that there's two streams of wisdom. And I kind of illustrated it as two different streams that you could maybe get a drink from. One stream, James says, flows from the very character of God. And from that stream, when we drink from it, when we spend time with God, when we gain his wisdom, it works itself out in our life as love, peace, gentleness, self-control. James talked about last week in that paragraph, he says that we'll be people of mercy, we'll be peacemakers, people who seek to make peace with others through forgiveness. But James said there's another stream over here and it looks very refreshing, and it, and it looks like there's some knowledge and some wisdom there, but James said if you track that stream back, just like with this stream that flows from God and his character, there's another stream, and it has a fountainhead, and at that fountainhead, he said it's earthly, it's unspiritual, but ultimately, it's demonic. The scary thing is, is this stream looks very inviting. It looks like it has all the answers. James says that that you're drinking from one of those two streams, and as a result, you live your life accordingly. James says that it is obvious, just as faith in Jesus is obvious in how you live your life. He's already talked about that faith without works is what? It's dead. It's, it's not saving faith. It's dead faith. And so whatever wisdom we are participating in, whatever however culture is influencing us and whatever has the greater influence in our life, whether it be the wisdom of God or the wisdom of man, make no mistake about it, that also plays out in your life tangibly. But James puts his focus on the church. And James is struggling with something he's seeing inside the body of Christ. Now, we all understand that the world as we know it, this world, this culture, Robinson County, we know that it's off the rails. We know that the fall has influenced everything from the kings and presidents and leaders in high places all the way down to the guy on the street corner. This wisdom or lack thereof has influenced our world and not for the best. The reality is, is we, we understand that the world is at war. It has been for many, 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 many generations. We understand that the world is going to be disrespectful. We know that the world is going to be hate-filled. We know that the world is going to rip itself to shreds. We know that. That's the result of the fall and the brokenness that we are all born into. We understand that, that the world predominantly is drinking from a stream over here that is actually poison. And folks, when you, when you drink poison, it's going to have an effect on your life and an impact on your family. But what about the church? And that's James's entire focus here. James says, when that kind of creeps into the church, when the, when the church becomes, world, becomes friends with the world, what's going on there? When you cannot tell a discernible difference between those who say they follow Jesus and the rest of the world. That's exactly what James is going to deal with at the very first verse. Look at the first verse. 
he asked a question. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That's a good question. So, so James is asking this church. Now, the church that he's speaking to is made up of people who were formerly Jewish. And they have recognized Jesus as Messiah, and they have put their faith in him. And therefore, they have come from darkness into light. They have sat under James's teaching. But James looks at the body of Christ, and he says, why are you guys at war with one another? Why are you fighting with one another? Why are you so angry with one another? And why are you acting towards one another just like the world acts towards one another out there? Well, shouldn't there be a difference? Shouldn't there be a, a change? And he says... Is not this that your passions are at war within you? So James asked a question in response to the first question that he asked. And he says, is it not that your passions, you see that word passions? The Greek word actually means pleasures. He says, do you not know that your pleasures are at war within you? What does he mean by that? He says, first of all, you've got quarreling and fighting, and that could be in a church context, it could be in a marriage context, it could be any place where there are two people together and they're fighting and quarreling, two people who, who understand the love of Jesus and understand his grace and have been forgiven, and they're called to live in a relationship together, yet they're fighting and quarreling. He says the, the source of that fighting and quarreling comes down to some things that are at war inside of you. There's a battle going on. And it all has to do with desire. Now, desire is not a bad thing. It's part of God's image in us is who we are as human beings created in his image. The problem with desire is when it is applied, how it plays out. And does it lead us to this stream of poison that flows, well, from Satan himself that leads to destruction? Or does our desires lead us to the wisdom that flows from the character of God himself? That desire and how it's applied ends up setting your life on a course and he says that course is fighting and quarreling and anger and hatred, really no different than what the world is experiencing. He says your passions are at war. Notice what else he says. He says you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Man, that is, if I've told you before, James is a hard book to read. What is he saying? Is he saying that we're, Going to go out and take someone's life? Not necessarily. I think it flows back to the Sermon on the Mount. You remember that great sermon that Jesus preached? And I've already showed you, showed you that James was heavily influenced by that sermon, by what he writes in this letter. James says, now remember when Jesus was preaching at the Sermon on the Mount, and he, and he says that, hey, if you've committed murder, if you hated your brother or sister to such a degree that you've wished them ill, you have basically destroyed their character in your own mind. You may have not even put any words to it. You've not acted on anything. But on the inside, you have hated another person to such a degree. Jesus said, guess what? That's, that's murder. Not in the sense of physically getting a knife and taking the life, but internally, in your own conscience, you wish that person was dead. You wish that person would suffer. You wish that person would fall flat on their face. And Jesus says, and James says, that we want something so bad that these desires inside of us can be applied in such a way that we wish another person, well, ill will and even death. Now listen, folks, your pastor included. 
If we could play out loud the things that run through our head every week, I think we would all agree we'd be deeply ashamed. And there's things that we entertain in our head that never come out our mouth. That, by the way, God knows exactly what's going on. James says we, we want something, we covet something, and we cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. He says, well, you see something that you want, and you want this thing, and it's, it's flowing out of this stream of ungodly wisdom, and you desire it, and you want it, so you want to act on it. And internally, you've got this war going on, because on the one side, you've got that still, small voice. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got God living in you, so there's that small voice in your head saying, do not go down that path. But on the other side, you're like, man, I really would like that. That would make me feel good. It would make me forget my problems. But it's poison. So how do we react and respond to one another? We're angry, we fight, we quarrel, we we go at each other. You take this within the marriage relationship, you can see how this plays out. Passions and pleasures that that are infiltrating the marriage relationship and they begin to cause damage and begin to pull two people. By the way, the Bible says that we, two people become one. And what begins to happen is, is those pleasures and those desires that are acted on outside of God's plan for your life begin to tear the oneness of one into two again. A lot of y'all walk down that path. You know how horrific that is. James says, you see what you want. It awakens a desire. You want it but it conflicts with what God wants for you. So there's this war going on, and then it manifests itself in anger and hatred towards other people. Look what else he says. He says, you also don't have because you do not ask. Now, that, that sentence has always bothered me, why James throws that in there right in the middle of this whole conversation. But James is going to help clear that up in the very next verse. But before we get there, there's a lot of things that we don't even ask God for that God, by the way, would give you. The desires that are part of his image in you and how we act on them. God's saying, here, I know you've got that desire. I know that's how I made you. But here, here's something better to act upon rather than listening to that ungodly wisdom. But listen to what he says next. So you don't ask. That's one of the reasons you don't have. But verse 3 is another, even stronger reason. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Here's the, here's the crazy thing. I've done it. You've probably done it as a follower of Jesus. You come to God and ask for things in prayer that God is up there scratching his head going, I can't believe you're even asking me for that. He's surprised that you're asking because what you're asking for is completely outside of God's will. So where did that come from? Well, This stream over here that we said is earthly, unspiritual, eventually it's demonic. As we drink of that and we participate in that and we accept that as truth, well, it begins to cloud our understanding of what is true and what is untrue. Romans 1, 18 and following, if you read those verses, Paul says there, he says that we can track all this back to basically a misunderstanding of what is true and what is false. He says that in that particular set of verses, he says it all begins with a denial of truth, which then leads to a denial of who God is, which then leads to a lifestyle that's completely opposite of what God has called and intended for you. God put laws in place, not because he's mean, but because he says, you know what? I love you so much. I want you to live inside these boundaries. 
You live inside these boundaries, you've got complete freedom. You cross over these boundaries, it's a train wreck. James says that we would actually come to the Lord in prayer and ask him for things that are completely outside of his will. But that's what drinking from unwise sources will do. James says you don't get it because it's going to be spent on your passions. And then verse 4, he just kind of gets right to the heart of the matter here. Verse 4, you adulterous people. That's a little harsh, isn't it? When we were walking through the book of Jeremiah back, what, first many months of the year, I told you about how the prophet Jeremiah often would receive the message from the Lord, and that message to the people of the southern kingdom would be a message that they had committed adultery on God. So God viewed his relationship with the nation of Israel as, as he was the, the groom, they were the bride, and he had set them apart to himself. And the first commandment in the Ten Commandments says that you'll have no other gods before me. In other words, you'll have no other lovers. You'll have no other people that you're devoted to, no other false gods. You'll be devoted to me. So when they turn their back on God, God says through the prophet Jeremiah, you have committed adultery on me. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah uses the words, you are whoring around on me. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? And it wasn't as though the southern kingdom just completely rejected God. If you remember, they had begun to worship false gods. One in particular, Baal. And they would set up altars to Baal on all these high hills. So what they were doing is they were, they were going to the temple, they were offering sacrifices, they were actually worshiping God, they were, they were reciting psalms in that temple. They would walk right out of that temple, go right over to this high hill, and offer, offer worship and sacrifices to a false god that was not even real. So on the same day, at the same moment, they're honoring God with one side of their mouth, and then the other time of the day, they're over here honoring a false god, even to the point of offering their children and human sacrifice to a god that was not real. So God says to them, you are a group of adulterers and adulteresses. James uses the same language here. The Jewish believers who heard this, this had to have gotten their attention. Look what he says. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Last week, I talked a little bit about these two streams of wisdom. One is the source of God. One is demonic. And oftentimes what we'll do, and I've tried to do it, I've tried it many times, especially in my 20s, is we'll try to, to figure out how to, how to live with both. Well, we'll try to find this happy middle ground where we're listening to the world. The world has tremendous influence on us Monday through Saturday. But on Sunday, I'll, I'll show up, I'll check the religion box, and I'll sing a few songs, I'll say a few amens, I'll raise my hand in the back, I'll shake a few hands, I'll get out the door as quick as I can, but when it comes to Sunday afternoon and the rest of the week, I'm all in with the world. And, and so we, we live in this place, and I've done it, I've done it for a large part of my 20s, where I could go to church and get my little religious business on. But make no mistake about it, Monday through Saturday, I was living for me. I was drinking from the world's wisdom. I was friends with the world. Well, James is going to blow that up for you this morning. James says that to be friends with the world is to be an enemy with God. 
It would help at this point to define that word friendship. You see that word friendship? The Greek word behind that English word, this is the only place it's used in the entire New Testament. And when you look at the definition, it's not really exactly clear. So when you, when you run into this, if you're using online software or you've got some books at home, if you, if you find a word in the New Testament that's only used once, first of all, you need to pay attention to that. Second, when you try, start trying to compare how that word's used somewhere else, you can't because it's only used once. Well, then this is when I often will go look at something called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now remember, New Testament written in Greek, Old Testament written in Hebrew, and a little bit of Aramaic in Daniel too. So there's your two predominant languages, Hebrew and Greek, behind your English translation. So when we find a Greek word that's used here, it's really important to see how that Greek word is used somewhere else. So then I go and look at the Septuagint. This book was written somewhere between 300 and 400. It's a Greek translation. It's only a few hundred years after Jesus' resurrection, they take upon themselves, the elders of the church take upon themselves the opportunity to rewrite the, the Old Testament Hebrew translated into Koine Greek. So I look at the Septuagint, often referred to as the LXX, to see how this word, if it's used in that Septuagint in the Old Testament, how is it used? Well, to my surprise, it's used in Proverbs five times. But it's not translated friendship a single time in any of those Proverbs. You know how it's translated? It's translated love. The root word of the Greek word here has its root word in the word phileo. We understand that as being one aspect of human love. So let's look at the verse again. Look at it this way. You adulterous people, do you not know that being in love with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be in love with the world makes himself an enemy of God. The word friendship there is not talking about buddy-buddy. Not talking about like the guy, you know, somebody I hang out with on the weekends. No, we're talking about a very deep, intimate relationship. And James frames it within the context of love for the world. James says, that God is jealous for his people. Look what he says. He says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, there's a lot of people who wrestle with this idea of God being jealous. If you go back to the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment, it says you'll have no other gods before me. And then that same verse and that same commandment, it says that God is jealous does that mean he's like petty? Does it mean like he's like insecure? Does it mean like the same way we understand jealousy and the fact that what we see lived out on the job side and in relationships, not at all? The only way I know to um, frame this is just to illustrate it. My wife was at first service. We've been married 23 years. And 23 years ago, we stood before a group of people and we said our I do's till death do us part. And man, we've had a tremendous journey. Man, what a, what a journey we've been on. But make no mistake about it. If a man, another man, starts creeping into this relationship, vying for my wife's affections, let me just tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to get all up in that. Okay? Because she and I are in a covenant relationship. She loves me and I love her. Lay down my life for her. She'd lay down her life for mine. I know that. But if another guy begins to kind of try to woo her, make no mistake about it, there's going to be problems up in here. 
That's what I would consider a godly jealousy. Why? Because I'm protecting that covenant relationship. By the way, any man worth his due would do the same if he's married. Amen? Amen. I hope that's an amen for everybody. You protect what God has given you, the greatest gift that he's given you, this side of heaven, your wife. You protect that. That's your role. So God has godly right jealousy for his people. He loves you even though you're trying to go off the rails. And get this, God in his jealousy for you is going to come after you because he's trying to protect you from your own foolishness. Thank God he's done that for me a thousand times because I can be pretty foolish. He yearns jealously over you but you cannot reconcile the world and God. You have polar opposites here. James says to be friends, to be in love with one is to be an enemy with the other. To be in love with God is to be an enemy of the world. To be in love with the world is to be an enemy of God. It's as clear as it can possibly be. So there is no way to walk this middle ground to make both work because both are opposed to one another. But look what God says here. He says, but he gives more grace. Thank goodness for that. In those times I've tried to make both work, in those times I've kind of aligned over here with the world system. Yes, God was jealous for me. Yes, God came pursuing me. Yes, God was looking for me. Yes, God was convicting me, telling me to come home. And in those moments where I rejected him, in those moments where I said, no, God, I want to be friends with the world, you know what God did? God didn't reject me. He could have. As a matter of fact, he would have been justified in doing so. God didn't walk away from me. God's love for me didn't lessen. Even when I was in that mess, even when I was going with the world, even though it had affected every part of my life, God says, not only do I love you, but I'm willing to extend grace and forgiveness to you even now if you'll just turn towards me. Isn't that incredible? So no matter what path you've walked, the beautiful thing about the gospel It's no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how much the world has influenced you. And even though that makes you an enemy of God, God's grace is sufficient. And he's saying to every one of his children, and by the way, James is talking to his children, God's children. He's saying, come back home. For those of you who've never put your faith in Jesus, listen, you are fully committed to this stream over here. You are full, you're all in. You have nothing inside of you telling you it's wrong, so you're all in. And not only that, you are part of the system that this is flowing from. Get this. There's only two camps. There's only two possibilities. You're either in the family of God or you are in the army, in the family of Satan. So if you're not put your faith in Jesus, you're all in over here. There's no conflict. Might feel bad about it. You and the world, pretty tight. That's a sure sign. If, if you're partaking of this, you're partaking of that wisdom, that stream of wisdom, and there is no conviction. There is, there is no like moments where you come to yourself and go, this is not honoring God. If those moments never come, the Bible has a definition for that. You're lost. You've never come to faith in Jesus. You might have some religion, 
but you've never had a life-changing experience with Jesus himself. Look at what he says. He says, as we move forward here, he says, but he gives grace. Therefore, God says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So God gives grace, but you know what's going to have to happen? Humility. And see, that's the problem when we've never been changed by Christ. Oftentimes, the very barrier that keeps people from putting their faith in Jesus is pride. But the very entrance into the kingdom requires humility. That you need a Savior. If you don't need a Savior, then what's the point? James says that our hearts are divided. I would dare say that some of you here today, your heart is divided. That on the one hand, you've got your religious duty over here. And on the other hand, you've got all the pleasures and the desires of the world. And you're trying to live out your life in the middle of those two. But James says you're actually not in the middle. To be a friend with the world is to be an enemy of God. You know how God treated his enemies, right? God treated his enemies in the Old Testament by wiping them out. But if it weren't for God's grace that James is talking about here, James says that if that's where you find yourself, you're in the middle of the two. The reality is, is that the allure of the world and being friends with the world is so powerful that you can only be devoted to one at a time. We like to think that we can be devoted to both. That we can have, you know, a few things from the world, no big deal, and, and God's going to be okay with that. God's going to wing. God's going to be fine with that. And we can somehow be the one person who finds out where this middle ground is and be able to live it out. That I can enjoy some of the world, have my ticket to heaven, and I'll be okay. Can I just tell you, you're not that person. You have not found that middle ground. There is no middle ground. James says, if you find yourself there, well, guess what? There's a pathway out of it. There is a pathway forward. If you're an enemy of God, there's a pathway by which you are back in a love relationship with God, the very thing he created you for. But the reality is, as long as we drink the poison out of that stream, eventually, if we drink it long enough, and we drink it deep enough, eventually we forget all about God. So what's the pathway forward? Look at verse 6. Actually, I'm sorry, verse 7. The first thing he says is submit to God. Now, what we're going to see in these next few verses is nine imperatives, nine action steps, nine action words. Now, what I've done is I've collected all of those actions and kind of put them under five different steps. The first step is submit yourselves to God. What does that mean? I'll give you an illustration. I've told you before that many years down, down through my years in ministry that I've, I've had the um, opportunity to counsel with couples who are going through some really hard stuff. One of the hardest things is when one spouse or the other has stepped out on the marriage and committed adultery. Some years ago, I had a, a good friend. I knew something was up with him. I knew something wasn't right. I knew things weren't going the way it needed to be going in the marriage. And, you know, they were saying it was communication problems, but I was afraid it was something much worse. 
Well, he invites me out to dinner one day, and we go to this restaurant. We're sitting there, and I could tell he's anxious. It was just kind of like that God moment. We're sitting there at the table, and he, you know, he's hem-hawing around, anxious. And finally, I just look him right in the eye, and I said, I've got a question for you. I said, are you cheating on your wife? I had no idea. I had no gossip. Nobody told me anything. Just had an intuition that something went right. When I said that, the color drains out of his face. He drops his plate and walks out. So I pay the bill, walk out. We sit in the car, and he admits to me that he'd been having a relationship with another woman outside of his marriage for over a year. His wife knew nothing about it, and I knew that because I met with her because she wanted to talk about the marriage, what was going wrong, and in her mind, it was just communication. She had no idea. So as I'm sitting there talking with him, and he says, he confesses this, I look him right in the eye, and I said, the first thing you have to do right now is get in your truck, go get your wife, and sit down with her and confess every bit of this to your wife, because he's telling me that he wants the marriage to work. And I said, you've, you've got to go right now. Well, she's at work. I can't get her out of work. It doesn't matter. You've got to get her out of work, and you've got to tell her. You've got to tell her what you've done. Guess what this means right here? You know he uses the same context that we've committed adultery on him by chasing after the world and being in love with the world. The first imperative is submit to God. It's the same exact thing. We run back to him. We carry all of our garbage, all of our mistakes, all of our all of our stuff, and we come back to him, and, and we submit to him and say, God, I have made a mess of this thing. It's exactly the same context of, of my relationship with this couple, that unless you're willing to face this God with all of your brokenness, with all of your flaws, with all of your sins, then there is no way back. You can't come to God and try to justify being with this other person. How would that work out, by the way? If, if the husband went to his wife and said, well, you know, I've been cheating on you, but let me tell you why. She's so much better than you. Ladies, how's that going to work? James says it's equally as foolish to come to God and say, God, well, you know, I've been having a great time over here. Man, alive, what a, what a great life I've got. But I understand I'm, I'm supposed to tell you I'm sorry but I'm really not, and I'll probably do it again. So thanks for your forgiveness, and then move on. Sadly, that probably sounds a whole lot like some of the prayers I've prayed in my life when I've gotten it wrong. James says the first step is to submit, return to him, place yourself under his correction, but not only just his correction, but you're placing yourself under his grace. Remember what James said? I'm so glad that James said this before. He says God gives grace on top of grace on top of grace. His grace is sufficient. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how much of that poison you've drunk, God's grace and forgiveness is sufficient. So submit to him. Simultaneously, we get the next one. We're going to submit ourselves to God. Simultaneously, we're going to resist the devil. You see, the poison in that stream is calling you back, isn't it? Those videos online are calling you back. That ungodly stuff you've been reading is calling you back. And it's got a hold on you, probably more than you want to admit. So at the same time, we're running towards God. We're running towards his stream of wisdom. We're running towards his character we're running away from that which is destroying us. The poison that we're consuming 
is eating away at us over and over. It's destroying your marriage. It's destroying your parenting. It's destroying everything. It's eating everything in its path. And God says, return to me. Come to me. Own what you've done. Own it. Be honest about it. And at the same time, walk away from that ungodly mess. Be willing to walk away from it. It's not that you've got to clean yourself up. It's not that you've got to get all better on your own. It's not that you've got to get over your addictions and then come to God. God says, no, you bring all that to me. Trust me with it, and I will give you the strength to overcome it. You're addicted to something, God will give you the strength to overcome it. we got people all in this congregation that have been over addictions for years. And they will tell you the reason they are is because God gave them the strength to do it. So you run to him, you resist the devil. Look at this next one. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Drawing near to God, if you go back to Isaiah 6, you see Isaiah in the temple. He, he's taken up to, and into the throne room of God. He sees God in all of his beauty. And the more you see God, the closer you get to God, the more you love God, the more you realize your own brokenness. It's inevitable. So draw near to God. He draws near to you. And then listen, he says, purify and cleanse. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You see, you're trying to live this double life, this double-mindedness. God says, come to me. Draw near to me. I'll draw near to you. Own what you've done. Flee from the devil. Walk away from the poison. And then God is going to help us purge the poison out of our system. We need to be cleaned up. God wants to purge all of that poison that we've been consuming by being in love with the Lord. He wants to clean all that out and purge it out. How's he going to do that? Well, Jesus, when he came into the world, lived the perfect life. He was arrested, beaten, accused, put on trial, whipped, put on a cross. In that moment, we know what was happening because Paul tells us that in that moment, he who knew no sin became sin for us. In other words, Jesus became sin, the sin that I've committed. In other words, Jesus took the full brunt of all the poison the world's got. Took it all. Took every bit of it. Took the biggest bite, the biggest dose of poison. He took it all. All the sin, all the degradation, all the demonic power, all that hell had, threw it right at Jesus, threw it in his face over and over again. You know what Jesus did? He took it. He took his life. Three days later, he rose again. You see, Jesus took all of that poison on himself. He overcame it. He beat it. And he offers to you through his cross, through his shedding of blood, through his death, he offers to you the ability to purge the poison that is in your life. And it can only happen through his blood. Only through his forgiveness. Only by coming to him. Only by seeking him. Notice what else he says. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Number nine, verse nine, be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy be turned to gloom. When's the last time you mourned over being in love with the world? I mean, it's so easy now, right? It's, it's so easy to drink out of the stream. I mean, it's flowing from all directions. But once you realize that you've been drinking poison, and once you hear God 
his call and his conviction. Well, let me ask you this. Is, is, there, is there brokenness over the sin or is there this pat prayer? Oh, God, forgive me. I'm sorry, man. I messed it up again. We just move on. Which, which one sounds more right? I, I can tell you which one sounds more right in my life. The pat prayer. Going through the motions. Oh, I'm sorry. Messed that one up, Lord. James seems to think that we ought to be wretched. You see that word wretched? Without getting too graphic, the word behind it means to basically vomit, to, to, to be so on the inside torn up that you're physically affected by it. When I was growing up, the church I grew up in, ever so often there would be these testimony services that would break out. Someone would share a testimony, and then another person would share a testimony, and another person would share a testimony, and sometimes the, the pastor didn't even get to preach, and it'd be just a whole service of testimonies. I remember those services like it was yesterday. But then there's this other memory that I have that's very clear and very distinct because I remember it as a kid, especially when I was a preteen teenager. There were people in our church that I grew up in who had you know, been delivered from alcoholism, party lifestyle, that kind of thing, and they get up and share testimony, and the testimony would sound like this. Man, when I was living back in those days, man, we were having so much fun and I had so many friends and man, we were partying and man, we were doing all these things together. And Man, I'll tell you what, it was, it was just this incredible life and, and then I met Jesus. You hear a problem there? It was almost as though they were, they were glorying in the old days, the good old days. Oh man, I was really having fun and then I met Jesus and all that went away. I couldn't help but think as a teenager, before I gave my life to Christ at age 16, that, that maybe, maybe these people had it right to start with. Maybe the life they were living was better than the one they're living now because that's what I was hearing. All I was hearing was is the, the party was so much fun, but then I met Jesus and then I had to give all that up. Well, bless your heart. I know it's such an inconvenience to follow a resurrected Lord who beat hell, death, hell, and the grave, who gives you brand new life and brand new purpose. I know it's such an inconvenience to be guaranteed heaven that one day you will never, ever step in the doorsteps of hell and you'll be with God for all eternity. I know that might be an inconvenience to your little life. But hear me well. Following Jesus is the best choice I've ever made. Nothing in my background even compares. And so it is with you. Jesus is not an inconvenience. He gave you new life. One day you're going to see him face to face. Hopefully we're going to get to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Man, I hope I get to hear that. I'm trying to live my life now based on that reality, but the point being is, are you broken? Or is our friendship with the world to such a degree that it's really not that big a deal? the things we watch, the things we listen to, the things we read, the things we consume. We've justified it to such a degree that even when we think we've done something wrong, we can just go to God, give him a pat prayer, and move on with our life. Finally, he says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Lower yourself. Here's the thing. This is, this is the lies we listen to. When we're partaking of this Wisdom is not really wisdom at all. It flows from a demonic source. When we have that moment of conviction, when we have that moment that we, we know that this is not good, we know this is poison, 
In that moment, when we get that, that stream of light of conviction where God is calling us home, almost instantaneously, we begin to think, well, God's not going to forgive me of this. So we just stay right where we are. Or, or the other idea is that we can never get over this. This thing has such a thing in my life, the idea of living without this thing, without this thing in my life, the idea of that is just so far out of there, so there's no way that I'm going to be able to live without it, so I'm just not going to do anything. Those are all lies. He says, humble yourselves, lower yourselves, admit that you don't have it all together, admit that you need help, admit the fact that that this thing that you're addicted to has such a hold on you that, that all your life you've been living as though you control it when in fact it controls you. It has for a very long time. So when we come to God with humility, we're not coming to God to make excuses. We're not coming to God and submitting to him to say, God, I've got it all figured out. If you could just offer a little help. We are casting ourselves before a holy God. Say, God, I'm sorry. I admit that I got it wrong. But I can tell you, God, I like this stuff. I like the alcohol, I like the heroin, I like the pornography, and I will go back to it if you don't help me. That's humility. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and listen to this last part. He will exalt you. Sounds to me like he's going to pull you out of that pit. Sounds to me like he's going to give you the power and the ability to overcome. It sounds to me like he's going to fix some things. Sounds to me like there's going to be a renovation. Sounds to me like the very moment we admit that we no longer want to be in love with the world, that God says, now we got some work to do. A couple of things to consider before we go. The thing about this stream over here, if you drink it long enough, if you drink that poison long enough, eventually it becomes sweet. You drink this mess long enough, and eventually, that which at one point you felt bad about, eventually, it's no longer a problem. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, if you want to know what water is, don't ask a fish. He doesn't know. That's his life. The longer you live in love with the world, the more the world becomes your just normal, everyday operating procedure. And the longer you do it, the more you realize, is there really any other way to live? There's a story of a, a goose that was flying over a, a farm, and every year he'd fly over this farm and see the farm, and he would see the chickens and how they had all their food and had a little house and had all their, everything was taken care of by the farmer. So one day this goose decides, you know what? I'm checking out all this flying. He lands in the barnyard. And so he just lives just like the chickens. He's eating food like the chickens do. He goes in the roost like the chickens do. He's in the fence like the chickens are. And the chickens can't fly, so he doesn't fly anymore. And he just stays there. And next thing you know, he thinks he's a chicken because he's fell in love with the lifestyle of the chicken. Years pass. One day he's there living his life as a chicken and flying overhead in that perfect V formation is a flock of geese flying at a high over there, and they're just soaring through the clouds. And all of a sudden, something awakens in him, and he's like, wait a minute, I used to do that. I used to fly. What am I doing here? What am I doing in this barnyard? What am I doing with this fence? What am I, what am I doing living like a chicken? These guys can't fly. I can fly. So what does he do? He starts flapping those wings, and he can't even get over the fence. But it's the next decision that makes the story. He simply says, well, you know, I'll just stay here with the chickens. 
probably a lot of people under the sound of my voice, both here and online, have just gotten accustomed living with the chickens. When God has called you to so much more, your marriage to so much more, your parenting to so much more, your leadership in the business world so much more, your you as a CEO, CFO, God has called you to more. But yet we get accustomed to what the world says is true and logical, all the while not realizing that it's poison. Loving the world leads to an eventual abandonment of God. You see, you won't say that, but in essence, that's how you're living. And then finally, Jesus wants you to come home. You remember that parable that Jesus shared of the father being on the front porch waiting for the prodigal to come home. (laughs) That father was looking and looking and looking and looking down the street waiting for his son to come home. God is saying to you, I want you to come home. You've been drinking that poison long enough. Come to me, submit to me, resist the devil. Let me clean you up. Come in humility. And I will absolutely blow your life up with purpose, love, meaning, your marriage, your career, your life. You're never going to find it over here. No matter how much you drink, all it's going to end up doing is poisoning you from the inside out. But God says, come home. Jesus says, come home. I want you to come home. My love and my grace is sufficient. I've made all the preparations. All I need for you to do is to turn your eyes back towards him. Walk towards him. He'll give you grace on top of grace. Father, your goodness and your grace is sufficient for wherever we've gone and for whatever we've done. I know, Father, and you know, Father, how many times that I've run back to the world to try to befriend it. And every time it was poison. So, Father, I I know what your grace is like because I've experienced it. And I wonder, Father, if there's some here today that have not. I know, Father, a sermon like this, it's hard. It'd be hard for someone just to step out and walk down front, grab a hand of somebody and pray. I know that, and I understand. But, Father, I pray that, that they would not be concerned about walking down front, that they would simply be focused on your voice, that they would simply realize that where they are is because of a series of choices that they've made, And Father, you are welcoming them home. Home may be salvation for the very first time. Home may be realizing just how much we've become friends with the world. But Father, I pray that we would cast our eyes upon you. One day this life is going to end. One day we're going to breathe our last. All that's going to matter in that moment is where we stand with you. Draw people to yourself today, Father, as only you can. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and worship together. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist Church.